This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we're talking to Dr. Megan Rose, I hope. We've been at this for a while. There have been a lot of glitches, uh, but it, we're now using Megan's uh, Zoom, and hopefully it will work. Uh, as my listeners know, Megan, this is a haunted show. Not the only one. Other, other, other podcasters, when they talk about the world of the dead, have similar problems. Okay, where I would like to begin, folks, uh, with this show is in a funny kind of a place. I'm going to read from something called the Florida of Apuleius of Madarura. Uh, the Florida means the flowers, and he was a Roman author. And this is going to give you an idea of something that we have lost in our world. This was written when the world was still enchanted. And it's a description of what it would have been like if you'd been walking down a road between cities in, the, in ancient times. I cannot conceive, he writes, anything that could give a traveler juster cause to halt in sign of reverence. No altar crowned with flowers, no grotto shadowed with foliage, no oak bedecked with thorns, no beach garlanded with the skins of beasts, no mound whose engirdling hedge proclaims its sanctity, no tree trunk hewn into the semblance of a god, no turf still wet with libations, no stone astream with precious unguents, for these are but small things. And they were small in those days. They were everywhere because we considered the world around us to be sacred. You will never find anything like that anywhere anymore. It's gone. But the world is still here and the world is still sacred. We're going to be talking to Megan today about her book, Spirit Marriage, intimate relationships with otherworldly beings, because we can reconnect with the world in a deep, profound way, not just by thinking about it, but by marrying the conscious entities that are in other levels of reality, like the one right back there to whom I am, as you know, actively married right now. Megan has a doctorate in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies, a master's in religion in society from the Graduate Theological Union. And beyond that, she's an initiated ceremonial magician, a Shakta Tantric practitioner, a senior seer in the House of Bright Fairy Seership. She serves as an ordained interfaith minister and psychospiritual counselor and is the executive director of the Entheosis Institute. So this is, a, in some respects, a conventional uh, 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 resume of a, of, of a theologian, but it departs from that. In, it, what is the House of Bri Fairy Seership, for example, Megan? House of Bri Fairy Seership is 
the Institute founded by Orion Foxwood, who I know has been on your show before. Um, and it is really the, um, the flowering, the gifting, the outcome of his marriage to his spirit wife, who is the fairy queen, Brie. And so, um, you know, in my book, I talk about Orion and um, his union with Brie. I interview Orion. He writes the foreword for my book. Um, <clears throat> and I interview Orion amongst a, a variety of other people. But um, Brie is this um, powerful fairy or primordial presence that uh, came to him and uh, was uh, guiding tutelary spirit for a while. And then um, they were married in the folkloric fairy rite and um, a whole lineage of teaching flowed out of that, that union. And that is um, really um, indicative of the type of things that can, um, that can, can arise from these, these deep bonded relationships and, and marriages with otherworldly beings. Now, in my case, my marriage, I think, is with my wife, who became an otherworldly being after she passed away physically. Uh, it's possible that this is not the case. She said a fascinating thing, though, after she died. She said, I'm not Anne anymore, but I will always be Anne for you. And I think I would like to describe exactly what happened. And you can tell me what you think this is. I was at a conference in uh, 2016 and in a hotel room and I was doing my evening meditation. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And I saw suddenly the interior of a vesica Pisces like this hanging in the air in front of me. It was totally black. And uh, at first I thought, is it that a shadow? But then, no, it, it was clearly not. And when I realized this is not a shadow, it moved very slowly and carefully toward me and then turned and lay down across my feet. And I began to feel this most exquisite energy coming into my body through my feet. And since then, I have felt it a thousand, thousand times. It happens every day at least least once or twice and usually and all kinds of funny things happen like for example if i should fall asleep in a meeting it'll be there immediately and it'll be real powerful it'll wake me right up and that's why i think it's my wife because when i fell asleep in movies or meetings or plays in the past she would always jerk me and say wake up mm -hmm. um it also comes down onto my midriff at night and it's it has weight it can, and it's very subtle and careful. It doesn't drop down. It comes and rests, comes to rest slowly. And then this energy goes through my body that is absolutely extraordinary. So it's a mixture of the erotic and the, and the sensual and the spiritual all in one is this my wife? It seems like it to me. I wear both rings still because of this. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, 
you're the expert on diagnosing what that is. And if it has the flavor and the sense and the, the, the sort of resonance of your wife, then um, I would, I would work with it in that framework. Um, These otherworldly beings, you know, I um, use the term otherworldly or spirit um, because it's sort of the broadest sense of what, you know, um, we understand to be not physically in a human body in this moment, but it really runs the gamut of deities and angels and beloved dead ancestors, um, fairies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the discernment process of, you know, I'm having this encounter and what is, you know, what is this? Is this, an angel? Is this a deity? Is this, you know, that, that discernment process is one of the skills that, you know, the practitioner has to really, um, you know, it's like building the muscle of discernment to, you know, really determine um, who am I being contacted by and why, but it feels like um, there is also a certain amount of, um, volition that we have as a practitioner to um, to request or to even shape the experience meaning um, in my own case with my with my spirit uh, contact um, the the being that was contacting me was this deep sort of primordial um, vegetative horned god type deity. Um, but but vast and not really um, fixed to one identity. And over the years, as I was developing the contact, we sort of agreed on a, um, a deity form, Gwyneth Meath, who is a Welsh lord of the, the dead and lord of the fairy people, as sort of the best, closest approximation of how I would work with my contact, but he's very clear in saying that he's not limited to that. And I think that's really important, like limited to that one fixed um, ideation or, or, or entity. Um, And so I think that that's a, a really wonderful example of when we're not talking about something that is bound by time and space and physicality, there is so much more flexibility for these beings to dance with a variety of different flavors and um, embodiments. And um, for, for many, many years when I was working on um, developing the contact, um, Gwen which is sort of what I call him now, because that's the, that's the name we settled on, uh, would show up, would shapeshift and show up like a lot of different things. And the only thing that I could really um, count on was that it felt the same. The somatic feeling presence of it had a a very unique um, response that it elicited in my body, Um, similar to what you're describing with, with your wife. And so um, what I love about this is that, you know, Stan Groff, psychologist Stan Groff talks about contact with, you know, non-ordinary beings. And he said that, you know, the visual, how they show up is less important than the somatic. The somatic is sort of because, you know, we can 
um, they can put on all kinds of different costumes. Orion likes Orion Foxwood um, likes to say that Bree reaches into the drag closet of his mind and pulls out a different costume to convey um, different things that she's trying to express to him. So I think of like gender and and vision, like visionary, what they show up visually like as a, a language. And the somatic is more like how it feels to us is more of an indication of the, the rightness, the trueness, the authenticity of the contact. Well, that, that, that interesting is this question of authenticity, because it's easy to, to uh, invent this. And, and yet when it's not invented, it's very clearly not invented. Uh, In my case, there's no, I've never seen, I've only seen the one thing, the vesica Pisces. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that, and that, that's all. I haven't ever seen anything else. I did hear and trying to talk in a seance that I reported on, on dreamland a few weeks ago, which I'm sure my listeners remember, but uh, so the, these, but these entities, there are many of them out there. And I want to I want to move now to just you know of course you know very well that the Christian community, the Christian right, hates all of this and considers it all demonic, and is very paternalistic and very much part of the past. Doesn't know it yet, but it will. And what is the difference between demon and daemon? And why is this not what they say it is? Yeah, so the the daemon, right, is uh, a term that is used, um, I believe it was Socrates that coined the term. It is um, spelled D-A-E-M-O-N or D-A-I-M-O-N. And it's, um, uh, uh, the, the word demon is kind of a, a misinterpretation or a bastardization of the, of the word daemon. Um, in Socrates and Plato's time, the daemon was a guiding tutelary or teaching spirit that each of us were born with and that <clears throat> we kind of think of it in uh in more common terms as like the angel or the demon on the, on the two shoulders, that's kind of what it became degraded into. Um, But originally those were one being and it was a guiding intelligence that was most often benevolent. um, And, um, and I say most often because that sometimes we um, think that these beings should solve all of our problems (laughs) and answer all of our questions and everything should work out the way that we think that they should work out. And sometimes, and, and often the, the tutelary spirit is trying to guide us in onto our truest and and highest path. And sometimes that's a little painful. Um, So these tutelary spirits were otherworldly beings that that humans had the potential to have a, a deep bonded relationship with that guided them. And um, Socrates uh, was um, was very well known for having this um, tutelary spirit that um, that he referred to for 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 much of his um, teachings and work and. It's really only been, you know, the past couple thousand years with the rise of the church and sort of the agenda of um, some of the, the, you know, Christian authorities to 
take away the rights and the power of the individual to reach through to the other world and place in in place of that their gods their spirits their clergy right that was to disempower the relationship between the individual and the spirit world exactly this is very much what it's about what 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 has been put in between them though is something that actually doesn't have necessarily have such a relationship. Uh, I may or may not. I mean, some priests and preachers I'm sure do, but not all, but it's not right. I don't think we have all God. Right. This power to do this if we wish to. Um, I would like to talk now a little bit uh, to move on into this to talking about a little bit about some of the early the people who uh began to bring this into the world in the modern world as it were uh i'm particularly thinking of your discussion of carl jung and his red book and the reason i bring it up in particular is i read the red book with my reading group uh, i've been in for many years over a two-year period, we read and discussed the Red Book. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what Jung discovered. And folks, some of you already know the, the difficulties that are there with Jung. And I'll just refer to them that he was briefly deluded into believing the Nazis. And uh, he... He, after the war, said, I made a mistake. And during the war, he was briefly taken to Germany. To, they tried to make him into a spokesman for Nazism. And he realized this was completely insane at the time. So I just refer to that because I know that'll be in some minds. I don't think it's a very important part of his legacy. Uh, but an important, very important part of his legacy is the Red Book. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the spirit entities and how he regarded them, which is different from the way, say, I regard Anne as a real being, a physic, semi-physical presence in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's, in fact, what she is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but go ahead and talk a little bit for us about Jung. Yeah. So Jung... Um, and we, we cite Jung because the Jung's influence on contemporary psychology can't be, uh, you know, it can't be um, di- diminished. It's, it's uh, you know, so much of our contemporary psychological theory is rooted in Jung, even though, you know, there were times where he had was a problematic figure. Um, but one of the things that is remarkable about Jung and that really only has come to light in the last 10 years is this Red Book encounters that he was having. Uh, it was at a time in his life where he had studied with Freud um, and um, was already a fairly well-established psychologist. Um, and he started having kind of these, these experiences with what he, what he referred to as inner figures um, but that what really clearly to him over his years of exploring these relationships um, 
became um, it became obvious that they were that they were beings, that they were kind of entities that he was having these conversations with. Um, And, you know, during the uh, initial encounters, he thought, well, I'm either I I, I could be going mad um, and I could try and suppress this or I could just lean in. And if I lean in. Um, I need to just allow myself to go fully into these um, conversations. And so that's what he did. He leaned in, he documented the, um, the experiences that we were, that he was having in this gorgeous illuminated manuscript, the red book, which is um, he's got paintings and drawings and all of his writing um, of these encounters that he was having. Um, And one of the figures that was very prominent during this time was a figure called Philemon, which was this sort of tutelary spirit inner aspect, but also this, it became really clear that this was an intelligence that was beyond just Jung's, Um, core self or core personality. And Philemon um, would reveal to him some of Jung's most major um, psychological theories. Uh, And later on in life, he would attribute these um, psychological theories, things like the collective unconscious and the anima and the animus and archetypes, he would attribute it to Philemon's teaching. So here we have a otherworldly or an extraordinary intelligence um, that is giving, you know, information to a um, to a scholar and is taking this information and integrating it in developing teaching systems around that. And he's not the only person that did this. Um, Rudolf Steiner attributes most of his um, anthroposophical teaching to a group he calls the masters that were um, otherworldly beings that he was working with as well. But in both cases of both scholars, the families um, repressed this information for a, for a number of years, although neither scholar ever um, ever uh, retracted that the, their theories had come from otherworldly beings, the, the families, because they were afraid that they were going to be, you know, discredited by this sort of out there otherworldly contact, um, suppressed this information until fairly recently. So, yes. so, <laughs> oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so here we have two really great examples and they're not the only ones of, um, of, uh, people who created foundational systems of psychology, philosophy, et cetera, um, who are attributing their knowledge to these, these guiding spirits. We're going to take our first break now, folks. Uh, uh, and we are, um, we'll be right back subscribers. I mean, free dreamlanders subscribers will keep right on keeping on. And subscribers, uh, please do take a look at the new edition of Communion, and especially the audio book. We are talking to Megan Rose. Her website is drmeganrose.com. Her new book, and it's a powerful, important book, is Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. Before we go on, Megan, I think it is important to ask this question. There will be people here listening who want to get into a spirit marriage. What route should they take? Mine came to me. I mean, I wasn't expecting it, but it did. 
And of course, Anne was always a very unexpected human being. You never, you never could be sure what would happen next in that wonderful life I had with her in the physical. So, but how would they do it? What do they do? Yeah. So, you know, in the spirit marriage relationship, um, there's a proposal. And if we're looking at the traditional sort of folkloric accounts of this, um, the spirit is, or the deity. So I use the term spirit, but that's just sort of my catch-all for any sort of otherworldly being that isn't currently in a human physical body at this time. So we could be talking about deities or angels or fairies or any number of these um, otherworldly beings. It's typically um, in the very traditional practice um, proposed by the spirit to the individual. Um, It also uh, happens where the spirit or the deity will go to like an elder or a mentor and say to the elder or mentor, I want to marry so-and-so, and and then the invitation will be um, precipitated that way. However, um, you know, we know that we can have deeply devoted, loving, bonded relationships um, with otherworldly beings. And, and right now I'm thinking of like the, the practice in the tantric traditions of the Ishta Devi or Ishta Devata, the one's chosen deity. And, and so much of those practices are around seeking and finding one's, one's deity, um, one's divine self, and then stepping into deep devotional relationship um, that that can lead into a kind of bonded marriage. And so when people come to me and say, I'm really interested in this, what do I, you know, how do I go about it? I, um, if you don't already have a spirit that is, that is sort of ringing your doorbell saying, I'd like to marry you. um, Then I encourage folks to find um, a devotional deity, a devotional spirit that they know, like, and trust. And um, again, begin the wooing process, uh, begin the process of getting to know them. It's, it's not all that different um, from human relationship in that there is a process of needing to really discern who is the, the entity that I'm working with? What are they about? What would be the purpose of this union? Um, do I want to deepen this commitment and deepen this relationship? And so you spend time getting to know them. You spend time with them, just like you would a human person. And from that, you may arise the desire to step into this deeper marriage. And the, the marriage, and again, I use the term marriage because that's the most common term that we understand for a deeply committed, bonded relationship with someone. Um, but marriage historically has been entered into for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it's love and romance. Sometimes it's to um, have a, a, a country or, you know, rule, like we think of the, the, the marriages between, between kings and queens of countries. Um, sometimes it's to do some sort of a project or have a family. Um, so we, spend time getting to know the spirits that we might be interested in deepening with. And then the marriage happens because that there is a very clear union that, um, that needs to take place for that co-creative project to come out into the world. Um, And again, marriage 
isn't the only term that's used for this. Um, sometimes it's called a merge or a symbiosis or an indwelling, but it's the idea that the human consciousness and the otherworldly consciousness have come together in such an integrated way that the two beings share a co-creative or a co-creative consciousness, a, a, um, a, a, a sort of symbiote kind of relationship. Uh, the way Orion Fox would describes it is, he says he closes his eyes and he sees into his fairy wife Bree's world. He opens his eyes and she sees into his world. Um, but it's also not necessarily like this impinging consciousness that is there 24-7. There can be times where the spirit recedes more into their world um, or the human is more in um, doing their daily mundane things. But the reach or the contact is much more immediate and the present presence can often be persistent. You know, you say a very interesting thing here when you describe Orion's, and I do remember him mentioning this in his interview on Dreamland in 2017. Uh, the, the, when you close your eyes, you see into their world, and when you open them, they see into yours. I'd never thought of this before, but a couple of summers ago, I found that when I closed my eyes, I was seeing a vividly complex, rich, rich other world, which my listeners know all about this because I've, I've even written about it in my book, A New World. And uh, I actually physically entered it a couple of times I'm in the physical, but then they got all outraged at me. For, for, and I, it hadn't occurred to me until this moment that you know that was that is the world that is their world and you know we have uh, increasing proof in physics that there is a mirror universe in other words that, that that we are literally a mirror image there's another universe and i'm wondering if all of the stories of going through the looking glass and so forth and so on don't have a ring of an element of truth in them Hmm. Uh, have you ever had a direct contact with this other world? I know well, Orion has. Yeah, I think it's more accurate to say other worlds. Um, if you look at the folkloric um, texts that come out of Wales, like the Mabinogian and other texts, um, we're not just talking about one other monolithic other world. We're talking about other worlds nested within other worlds, nested within other worlds. So, you know, kind of more like this, um, multiverse, perhaps, that's been postulated with, you know, some quantum physics, but um, a, a, a version of that where the other world, like there's uh, the other world of the, the dead and the ancestors, there's another world of the fae, there's other worlds where other kinds of beings are there. And, um, and sometimes you can transmigrate between the, you know, and go back and forth. And, and in some of the folkloric accounts, um, humans can go into one other world or another or between them. So I think, and, and then, you know, we're just talking about terrestrial, there's cosmically, you know, uh, a sort of um, an infinite number of, of worlds we could be connecting to. And so, um, you know, remember when we are in our physical form, right, we're bound by time and space and physicality, but in these otherworldly spaces, it is, 
um, much more fluid. And so the ability to, to, to move and drop into these different um, frames, I think becomes a, a part of the work of the otherworldly adept. Um, and certainly we see this in some of the um, traditions like uh, the, in the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where they're really training the, the human, training the consciousness of the human, that part of us which persists with, uh, beyond death, to learn how to navigate you know, in the Tibetan tradition, they call it the bardos, but to learn how to navigate between these different otherworldly places that we could potentially travel to, um, avoid the ones that are more problematic um, or where we may get kind of stuck and, and move into the worlds where we can continue to do work in the afterlife or perhaps reincarnate. So I think that, um, you know, part of what spirit marriage, um, part of the gift is that we are then, um, constantly or persistently connected to an otherworldly being that um, that gives us access that can potentially open the doors to those other worlds for various purposes. I always get um, into myself into scrapes trying to go into other worlds and annoy. Annoy. <laughs> But I've always, Annie used to say, you really are the most annoying human being I've ever known. And I think that may still be true. In any case, true or not, uh, we're going to take a little break and we're going to go in a different direction. It's not a different different direction exactly, but we're going to go into some of the the practical levels of this after we come back. And uh, I want to. We're going to be talk, uh, uh, talking about something called the Amber Mellon operation, and it should be very interesting. Free Dreamlanders will be right back. We're talking to Dr. Megan Rose, her new book, and it is something else: uh, spirit marriage, intimate relationships with other worldly beings. As you have heard. You can do this. This is a very disruptive show. It's intended to make enable you to actually do these things. And you're told not to on many different levels and warned about it. And people, people love to experience fear as a form of entertainment and to spread it. I know that very well because I was once a horror novelist and I'm good at doing that. Mm-hmm. But, and people love it. But it's not right especially not when we're trying to enter a world of people like that, like Annie back there, who is hardly something out of a horror novel. And uh, now this question of the Abramelian operation, Mellon operation, is fascinating to me for two reasons. First, and and I'll, she, uh, 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 Megan will explain this in a moment, but I'm going to tell you why it's fascinating. First, because it's had such a powerful effect on human life. And second, I have a huge question. Could it be used now to, could that we, could we, could people who are in contact in this way, somehow help the planet because right now it seems that everybody 
who gets into a place of power in this world is either ineffective or horrible. <laughs> I don't see there's any one else. So we need help. Uh, tell us what it is first mm -hmm. and tell us a little bit about its history. And then we'll ask, I'll ask you whether or not we could use it as a force for good. Well, the Abramelin operation is typically used by ceremonial magicians to step into what is called the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. Um, and the Holy Guardian Angel is an aspect of um, the human that is... I think it's more uh, accurate to say actually that it, the human is an aspect of the Holy Guardian Angel. So um, we talk about in, and your listeners may have um, encountered terms of like the higher self, right. Or the divine self um, and the Holy Guardian Angel. Uh, when you look at it in the, um, the ceremonial order texts that describe it is something beyond the higher self. It is, um, what I like to refer to as the divine self. It is the um, this uh, wise intelligence that is um, that gives gives life and and form and shape to um, the manifest universe. Um, and I won't go too into the kabbalistic um, teachings on this, but um, there is um, this understanding that, you know, from, from the, from the zero point, from the void, um, things began to manifest um, and they, they manifest into the 10,000 things. And so um, the way I like to think of it is, you know, you are, the fingertip, right, of the divine pushing its way into the human world, um, making an impact. You're able to pick up things and create things and have a very physicalized impact on, um, the, on incarnation. Um, the divine or the, the divine self is upstream from that. Maybe it's the body that it, or the cosmic intelligence that is then pushing your expression out into the world. And there may be other people who are incarnated, like the fingertips of the God that are, um, that are downstream from this divine intelligence. So, in the um, in the ceremonial tradition, finding the name right or the identity of your divine self of this holy guardian angel um, is one of the greatest undertakings that a magician can take on. And the Abra Mellon operation is simply one set of rituals, one set of, it's not even a set of rituals. It's a, it's a sort of protocol that one can undertake to quest for the uh, knowledge and conversation with this holy guardian angel. So the idea is to establish a contact so that you can then reach back and even sort of lean back into that divine intelligence. And it becomes kind of the guiding principle. So in my research, um, I interviewed a um, ceremonial magician, a very high level um, adept who had successfully completed this operation. And um, he shared with me how um, the operation 
took place over three days, um, but the, the actual operation or the ritual itself took place over three days. But he had spent three years preparing himself for this three-day ritual. And in the ritual, one is sort of hermetically sealed into a temple chamber that one has to construct for themselves. And um, it requires support from the community because that, you know, you need people making sure that, you know, you have food and that you're protected and that, you know, the, the temple is, um, is sealed and, and um, upheld. And so um, what he described when he did the operation was that a lot of the rituals that he did to prepare for it um, were things that he then took into the um, functioning of the, the, the ritual itself, but they weren't necessarily prescribed. They were things that he had to divine and discern with, um, with the knowledge that he had built up as a ceremonial magician, as well as his, um, his various contacts. And um, the goal then is that at some point in that three-day journey where you're um, where you're, you know, in constant ritual. He said he would set a alarm clock and he would do ritual and then he would uh, set his alarm clock and he would sleep for a little while and the alarm clock would wake him up and he would do some more ritual. And he just did that constantly for three days. And by the end of that process, he said he had this um, powerful experience. And he said it was kind of like a reverse Kundalini awakening where this lightning bolt kind of came from the 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 top of his head and ricocheted down through his body and he said he was f- like just f- taken to his knees flat on his back prostrate from this um this energy well what he said was interesting about or you know the the um the manifestation of that contact was that um it wasn't like that they then he, he he says you know in his story it wasn't like he had harvey sitting next to him um, riding shotgun with him you know t- constantly you know telling him what to do um he said that you know after that he couldn't really do ritual for a uh, uh, a few years he said he was just he was really back to the very basics chop wood carry water um but when he would ask what do i need to do like what is the outcome of this how do i serve my community because he led a, a temple at that time ceremonial magic temple um he said that he got just this download just like a ticker tape of uh, not one thing that he could teach, but like a whole teaching system. And that's really consistent with what Orion described about his union with Brie. This whole teaching system came through these, these, these unions. And so, you know, the Abra Mellon operation is one kind of ritual that you can look up and sort of shape your quest around but you know it's not something that is rushed into um it takes months if not years to build up the um practices the things that you'll do the contact so that when you go into the ritual and you create that space for yourself um you have um uh you have success because not because doing that work and not having success can be a really shattering experience and then you know there's to the psyche um so I think that what I really loved about Frater Lux's story is when, you know, we were sort of sharing and I was sharing experiences that I'd had with my divine self. It wasn't the Abra Mellon operation that precipitated that. It was um, uh, something else. But yet we um, knew that the contact 
was genuine because of, um, you know, it's, it's this experience that you almost can't put into words. Like, how do you know the sound of your own soul? How do you know the sound of the divine? You, you, you know, it, it, it's something that is almost um, irrefutable from a, from a, you, you know, um, individual personal gnosis place. Yeah, I love the way that you uh, blur the line between your presence in this and the presence of an external uh, uh, spirit. Uh, the the uh, higher guardian angel is at once part of you and above you. Would that be a, an accurate way of I think so too. And I think that, you know, I think we, we humans and human bodies right now are really into this and that and discerning, right? We like, well, I'm me and you're you. And there's this clear separation, right? We have all these, uh, these binary separating kinds of ways that we orient ourselves. But I think when we move out of the time, space, physicality that we are embedded within, Things just become much more fluid and up and down and in and out and me and you. It's not it's not the same rules. And so, you know, we can be um, both in a marriage and in a conversation with a spirit beloved as well as our divine self. I didn't necessarily think that when I first started my research, I was like, Spirit marriage is this thing where a human marries this other thing and um, and they form a new thing. And then the divine self is me, but but more than me. And then I met the Shakta Tantric, who is um, both married to the goddess Kali, but Kali is also her divine self, her Ishta Devi. And that just opened up a whole new avenue of inquiry because... Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, the ceremonial magicians will say, no, no, you can't marry your divine self. That's, that's not how we work with it. But um, when I poked Frater Lux a little more on the subject, he's like, well, marriage actually isn't an incorrect term. We just shy away from it because of all the connotations that we have with marriage. And it, you know, what it comes down to is that um, in some of the ceremonial traditions, and I won't say all of them, um, the erotic relationship with the divine self isn't, um, isn't something that's focused on or even encouraged. But, um, you know, if we trot over to the Indic and the Tantric practices, there are that the erotic practices that uses the vitalism of the body, that uses the awakening a quickening energy of the body to connect to the divine and to connect to the divine self. And that is a part of their practice. So, you know, part of it is which practice are you working with? We don't necessarily want to muddy all the practices, but we also want to understand that these hard and fast rules that the traditions have created may be more for the preservation of the tradition, as well as what their sort of intended outcome is. And they're not necessarily a monolithic, this is true for everybody, or this is true for all psycho-spiritual encounters. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, we, we've got the last break coming up in a couple of minutes. So instead of waiting a couple of minutes, this is an ideal time to take it now. We will take our last break for Free Dreamlanders. We're talking to Dr. Megan Rose. 
Her book is Spirit Marriage. Her website is drmeganrose.com. And Megan, what can listeners and viewers do when they get on your website? Can they contact you? And what do you have? Yeah, absolutely. I have a variety of different things on my website. I have... um, a a course that people can take a self-study course on spirit marriage, which really takes people into the nuts and bolts of how to develop one of these types of relationships for yourselves. It's got psycho-spiritual practices um, and um, as well as the sort of historical roots of this. Um, I have uh, uh, sessions. I work uh, individually with people who are interested in um, either spirit marriage or a sort of psycho spiritual development. Um, so you can go onto my website and um, poke around and, and as well as a whole bunch of different um, interviews. I have a series that I call sit and sip with Dr. Megan Rosen. I've interviewed a variety of different spirit marriage practitioners, as well as given um, different um, talks on everything from reenchantment to animism to um, sacred sexuality. All right. On that note, we'll be right back. We're talking to Dr. Megan Rose about spirit marriage. And it is something that I think that we don't, we we live in a world that has gone soul blind and you have to, you have to open, open your eyes. You have to, have your vision cleared in order to see what's real. And I've been fortunate in that I had that done by the visitors who started to try to wake me up in, um, actually it was the summer of 1985 and I, I they couldn't succeed and couldn't succeed and came back and forth trying to fulfill what was an obligation to them that had been incurred by a, 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 a pact that I had made in my between lives that I have now remembered, but didn't know at the time. Finally, they just got sick of it and beat me up in uh, December of 1985, which became what's known as the communion experience. Mm-hmm. Over the years, I would, I had a, uh, the years after that, the, the next few years, I had a both a physical and a spiritual marriage with one of these entities who came to me a number of times in the physical and had physical sex with me. And it was very disturbing to me because uh, I was so embarrassed because I couldn't stop it. And I was physically helpless. I was n- not able to move when it happened. And it was so intense, I didn't want to move anyway, to be honest with you. So, and I was felt like I was being disloyal to my wife. And I told her about it, and she was completely not un, unbothered by it, to the extent that my friend Jeffrey Kripal, the Professor Jeffrey Kripal, who, with whom I wrote the book Supernatural, evolved the theory that maybe this was Anne this entity was also Anne. And what is that about? Do you have any thoughts about 
we, we, we've just, the reason I brought it up, of course, is we've just been talking about this blurred line between the self and the, the spirit world externally. And it might not be so blurred because, I mean, I had physical sex with this being. And I even know one of the people who was there to witness it. Uh, so it happened. What happened, do you think? Do you think it was, in some sense, it was Anne? And Anne was um, incarnate at the time, correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, we are, I really think of humans as constellate beings, like a constellation of beings and intelligences. I mean, even if we look at it from like an Asagioli psychosynthesis perspective, we have all these lovely inner aspects of ourself that is our sort of local self. And then we have um, other aspects of our extraordinary self that are nested within, as we were just discussing, deity, but other perhaps, um, other perhaps strains or or uh, manifestations of of beings. So you know, you look at like the folkloric fairy accounts of um, humans mating with the fairies and then giving. Um, and then giving birth to offspring that are then hybrid fairy and human offspring that even as recent as, you know, Dion Fortune's writings in the 1940s was um, talking about these kinds of hybrid beings. And so um, that means that our human DNA may not be as human as we think it is. Right. And so that then gives us, if, if we, if we, if we sort of open ourselves to that line of inquiry, that means that we are um, composite or nested beings within a lot of different otherworldly, potentially otherworldly groups. And so, you know, was it Anne's fairy self that was encountering, you were encountering, was it an aspect of her divine self? Was it her, um, you know, in the witchcraft traditions, we talk about the fetch, um, there are, you know, the human consciousness and even the human body has many different layers and many different, um, manifestations of consciousness. Um, and, you know, we can't go too far down the rabbit hole of, um, esoteric body theory, but suffice it to say that, um, there are layers of the human body that is the physical, the subtle, the morphic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, what is paramount in these types of discussions is that we cultivate um, what I call the three D's of spirit marriage or really of any kind of extraordinary contact. And that is devotion. First and foremost, what are we devoted to? Um, and that is really establishing the no like, and trust factor with the beings that we're working with. So we want, and, and my research really has, has focused primarily on ben beneficent beings that we know, we like, we trust them, we even fall in love with them. And so we want that type of devotional relationship with them. Um, and then the second practice is discernment, really being able to discern what is the spirit what does it want? What is the agenda? Is it this? Is it that? And that is a whole, that's a whole art of discernment, right? That uses divination um, and 
Um, I, you know, in my own discernment process, it was like divination, mentorship from people that were my elders that could help me discern tools, teaching, spiritual technologies, rituals that helped constellate my magical body so that I could discern what was coming as like an inner aspect of me versus something that was more external to me. And then discipline um, is the third D, and that is doing the practices, doing the work, showing up every day and building, right? These aren't things that just happen overnight. We build them, we cultivate, we develop the practices in the magical body and the discipline practice of getting to know the otherworldly beings. You know, if you had a, a person that you were wanting to get to know, you wouldn't expect to know them if you didn't spend time with them. And That's so- true. We have to spend time with these beings. And sometimes we don't know. I will tell you, Whitley, that at the beginning of this whole research inquiry, it was precipitated because this being came to me and said, I want to marry you. And I didn't know who the heck it was or what it wanted. And so I spent so the marriage proposal happened like in 2002 and we didn't actually get married till 2018. I spent years trying to discern and really understand. And it, it really was the, the seed of inquiry that gave rise to what became my PhD dissertation. And now this book was trying to discern. Um, and I decided that discerning wasn't just about reading all the historical accounts, but talking to people living in this day and age that practice this and understanding how they did it so that I could better discern who this contact was. And, you know, like I said earlier, what became clear was that there was some negotiation as to who the contact was going to constellate as for me, um, because that um, because that there's some fluidity there. So, you know, it doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think that it, you know, it gives this sense of like, we have to show up and do the work on our side to, to cultivate the relationship. Well, that, that is so important. If you don't show up, nothing happens. And that's why I do, I do my, my work, which is known as the sensing exercise that my listeners all know about. And the subscribers can find examples of on the website uh, every day, three times a day, every day, seven days a week, unless I'm physically unable to do so. Very interesting to me is this, how these relationships work. Uh, uh, like I know how my relationship with my wife works. Uh, it, it can be very central, never sexual, not, not anymore, but very sensual. And I want to ask you about the relationship you have and who you are, who, who it is with. How much, how well do you know them at this point? Yeah. So, um, like I said, and I can't remember, I, I apologize, Whitley, because that since we've had like three different stops and starts, I can't remember what I've said in this, um, this take. Okay. There's well, you were talking of- about the, the, the request for marriage that mm-hmm. happened in 2004, I believe, and then all the years later, mm-hmm. you finally sort of said yes and mm-hmm. opened yourself to this. Mm-hmm. And what was it like after, what is it like? I guess you're still married. And what is it like, this marriage like for you? What's mm-hmm. your experience of it? Um, it's interesting. The Originally, the relationship was very much um, the the being Gwen would come to me in when I was dreaming, 
and it was very erotic in the in the beginning. Um, and that was actually the somatic cue that I would know that it was Gwen. I would have this very strong um, arousal, but not in not in a purely sexual way. It was like like I would be lit up like a Christmas tree, like everything would go into exaltation. Um, and that was very connected to my Kundalini Shakti. So this in this innate um, vitality in my body would sort of shoot up my spine and I would go into this exalted state, most often in dreams when I was encountering this being. And he would show up in a whole host of different um, um visuals right for anything from like deities and angels and plants and animals i mean it was like gamut but what i would know and the reason i would know it is him is because i would have the same somatic response which is what you know we talked about stan groff said is sort of the telltale sign of um the encounter um over the years the the erotic aspect of it lessened and at first I was like, well, you know, why? And then um, as, I, as I began my research, one of the things that I realized is that what we think of as, you know, sex here in the West or sexuality here in the West, we kind of have two categories for it. We have sex for pleasure and sex for procreation. Um, and that's sort of our very limited understanding of sexual energy. But if you step into, say, the tantric worldview, um, sexual energy or eroticism is the vitalizing of the body. It is the awakening of the divine within us and um, sort of uh, precipitates our extrasensory capacity. So the idea of a kundalini rising or kundalini awakening um, often um, hastens the development of um, paranormal gifts and abilities in the individual. And so often these kinds of erotic encounters with a being will um, is for that purpose. Um, and I won't say that's true for every single spirit marriage practitioner, but um, for the ones that I interviewed and the research that I did, this was true for many, many, many of them. But not everybody has erotic encounters with their spirit spirit contacts. Um, sometimes, like we talked about the tutelary beings, but even in the spirit marriage eroticism, as, as you shared in your case, isn't necessarily like de rigueur. It doesn't have to um, be there as part of the relationship. It really just depends on the nature of what you're doing and, and the outcome of, of the marriage. But as I said, the those encounters began to lessen and then the encounters in my dreams in, began to lessen entirely. And I thought, oh no, what's happening? Am I losing the contact? And what I realized at that point, this was about seven or eight years in was that I had been expecting the contact to always reach me. I'd been expecting Gwen. It was kind of like when you're in a relationship with someone and you always expect them to be the one to invite or to call or to reach out. And you're never, never reciprocating that back. Um, I hadn't been developing the rituals, the tools, the practices that, that I reached through to him. And so um, that sort of hastened a period of me really developing daily rituals, daily practices to reach through. And um, and again, you know, during this whole period, I was interviewing people and researching what others were doing and how they were doing it and using some of that to shape my own practices. And then when the marriage happened, you know, I had thought 
after interviewing all these people in the nature of their marriages and how the marriages happened, I had thought that it was going to be some big fet, you know, some marriage ceremony ritual that I had with my community there. And it just, it didn't happen like that. I was um, in, in a ritual, it was a Samhain or a, a you know, um, Halloween ritual um, that was uh part of uh, the reclaiming community here in the San Francisco Bay area. And I was actually priestessing an altar for the beloved dead. Um, But it was in that ritual that um, the marriage happened spontaneously. So nobody else in the ritual knew that my marriage was going to happen that night, but there is a, a a visionary practice that we do um, every year as part of the, this, this Samhain ritual called the, the rituals called the spiral dance. And within it, there's a, a a guided visualization where everybody like three, 400 people lay down on the floor and we travel to the other world. We travel to the Isle of apples, to the farther shore and we meet with beloved dead. And I'd done this ritual, this, you know, visionary journey many, many times with that community. But this particular year, when I traveled in vision to the farther shore, Gwen was there and he said, okay, it's time for us to get married. And so the marriage ritual happened uh, that way. And um, it was unexpected and kind of like almost a little anticlimactic because I thought that I was going to like, you know, in, in the in like the voodoo tradition, they have a cake and they have a, uh, a dress and they have the community there and they have a big party. And there's, an, you know, marriage vows that are exchanged and rings and stuff. And it just didn't happen like that for me. But, you know, um, I also am not initiated into one of these more formal spirit marriage protocol traditions where that would be what was expected. Um, And so after that, after 2018, what I notice is that it's not like Gwen impinges on my consciousness, but again, there is a, um, a daily way in which I have to show up and have communication and have communion. And um, I feel him more of as a somatic presence around me. Um, but he also has been a huge road opener for me, um, getting the book deal, getting the book published, getting them the information out there. This whole material, as Orion calls it, is the love child of my relationship with this with this being. I understand very well what you're saying, because my wife is and I are in a very similar relationship, only, of course, we got married in St. Patrick's Cathedral in the little lady chapel at the back of the cathedral when we were both in the physical. Mm-hmm. All right. You mentioned, interestingly enough, uh, very briefly, uh, voodoo. And, uh, we're, and we're going to end the free part of the show now. And subscribers, we're going to be talking now about a relationship and, or the story of a voodoo mambo uh, called Suzette. And what that means, because we have had on the whole history of Dreamland only one show with a voodoo saint, a practitioner of voodoo. And it's got such a ludicrous reputation in the West. Mm -hmm. It's so unfortunate and so wrong, so childish. Mm -hmm. It is not childish. It is not demons it is an extraordinary journey that is being taken by people in that religion 
into a relationship of a type that we don't have in the West anymore because we're too disenchanted. Uh, but we'll talk about this in just a minute. Friedrich Landers, thank you as always so much. Excuse me while I have the hiccups for being with us on Dreamland. And remember to go to drmeganrose.com and to explore spirit marriage, both her website and her book and in your own life. This is possible. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason to be afraid of it. There is every reason to re-enchant the world around you by re-enchanting your own life and opening yourself up to the truly beautiful lady who made us all, our mother of the earth, and all who travel with her. Subscribers, one of the most interesting parts of this book for me was the description of Megan's discovery of and uh, involvement with a mambo, a, a voodoo practitioner. Voodoo is, as I said just a minute ago, so, uh, it, so disregarded and it shouldn't be because it is an ancient, it is an ancient remnant of what it was when there was no barrier between the living and the dead, between the spirit and the physical, and when mankind was still soul sighted. Mostly, we're soul blind now. We're locked up, locked up in a little dark room. Here's the irony. The little dark room doesn't even exist. It's in here. Tell us about your experience with Suzette. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, when I first began this research, the, the Vodou tradition, um, which is a syncretic tradition that um, blends uh, African traditional religion um, Catholicism and indigenous spirituality here in the Americas. Um, and also in, um, so we have Haitian Vodou and we have New Orleans Vodou. Um, and uh, both of those, both Vodou traditions are sort of a remnant of African traditional religion um, and a vestige of the Middle Passage, right? The African slave trade. Um, and so uh, the, the, the religion is very much rooted in place, but also in the spirits that were brought from Africa with the, um, with the practitioners who were brought as slaves and then landed in Haiti, um, New Orleans and, and various other places. And so what we're looking at is this blend of a few different types of um, not just um, like the indigenous traditions in uh, or the the first people's traditions here in the U.S. But also, you know, if you're thinking uh, the folks that came out of Africa, they had their own tribal um, and regional spiritualities. And so oftentimes those spiritualities kind of blended together and then blended together again with the the land that they were on. So, yes, so ancient dating back to Africa, blending a few different things, which 
let's just pause here, Whitley, and say all religion is a blend of earlier practices and traditions. Even Christianity is a syncretism of a few different things. Well, that's good to say, yes. Yeah. I, I, I think it's important to say that. Yeah. So when I embarked on this research, I knew that I needed to interview Vodou practitioners, but I'm not a practitioner myself. Um, and I didn't really have any inroads to <laughs> to interview people in that tradition. And so um, I was sort of pondering about it and thinking, you know, um, how is this going to happen? How am I going to meet somebody? Because I didn't want to just, you know, call the local onfu or whatever and say, hi, I'm this researcher. Can I talk to you? I really, you know, particularly this type of material, you need to really be invited into the community so that they trust you and, um, and know that, and they needed to know that I was uh, somebody that was not going to come with just a purely scholarly perspective. I'm a practitioner scholar so that I, I really respect the interiority of the, of the practice and the spiritual technology of it. Um, and like you said, there's been such a smear campaign and a vilification of Vodou that that there is some sensitivity there um, that really needs to be respected. And so um, one night I had this dream. I'm a, as you can probably tell, I've talked about my dreams a lot. I'm a very powerful dreamer. <laughs> so I had this dream and this old Vodou mambo was in my dream and it was set in New Orleans. And she said, I want you to come interview me. I want you to come interview me. I, I, and she was a mambo, but she was being ridden by a spirit called Sanjak. And Sanjak was saying, I want you to come interview me. And so I, I, I was like, okay, okay, okay. And he made me even write down his name um, in my dream because sometimes I don't remember the words, but if I see something written down in a dream, I'll remember it. And so I woke up from the dream and I'm like, Sanjak, is that even a, I, because I didn't really know very much about the tradition. Is that even a, th- is that even a being, but um, come to find out it is, he's one of the, yes, it the is. and um, so I reached out to Orion and to a few other people that I knew had connections in New Orleans. And I said, here's the stream I've had. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing this research. Do you have anybody that you can introduce me to? And so they connected to me, me with a mumbo in um, New Orleans and we had a phone call and I told her my dream and she asked me very specific questions about it. And she said, okay, like, I think you're legit. I will set up some interviews. If you come here to New Orleans, come here to New Orleans and I will set up interviews for you with my community. There's a, a woman in my community, Suzette, who is um, her matet or again, that patron saint, holy guardian angel, divine self-energy is Sanjak. And um, she's married to um, uh, this Baron Samdi, the, the, the Lord of the dead. And so if you come here, I'll let you, I'll, I'll connect you with her and, and ask her to, to be interviewed by you. And so that's how I got Suzette's interview. I went to New Orleans a few months later and I interviewed her and Henri, who is a Haitian voodoo, um, practitioner, but are both connected to that community. And they shared their stories with me and they were really beautiful, powerful um, examples of a lineage based practice. And in that tradition, um, the marriage, the spirit marriage is called the mariage loa. Yes. Because that the Loire, I was wanting to talk about that. Yeah, so the Loire is the, their name for their deities, um, which are these powerful spirits that um, are divine, but also have a, a very closeness with humans because that they've been worshipped 
and and served, right? They call them the servitors. Um, they've been served and worshipped in unbroken lineage for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And so they have a very strong um, magical body or egregore built up around them. And the, as I said earlier, the marriage, the marriage loi is something that's practiced very openly and very readily within those communities um, and require, you know, and usually it's the spirit that that requests the interview or the spirit will go to the mambo or the ungan within the community and say i want to marry so and so and sometimes the marriages are arranged marriages because that you know each of these different loa have different qualities that they bring and maybe the community needs a certain quality and so someone will be asked to marry the spirit to bring forward that quality more to the community so it's um it's a really fascinating way in which the the spirit marriages really serve the the community and um and then you know there will be a whole marriage ritual that takes place there's a cake there's vows there's rings um and typically uh someone will stand in as a proxy for the spirit being married so the spirit will um, will arise in that person they call it being ridden by the spirit it will arise in that person and that person will marry um, the human uh, in sort of this proxy type uh, dynamic. So it's a really quietly, uh, quite elaborate and quite well-established practice that is probably one of the best preserved of the spirit marriage practices that I encountered. And, you know, when you look, folks, at the, at the ruins of the old world, the pyramids, uh, the uh, work done in, in Peru, on the land and on the uh, the fortress that's so-called at Sacsayhuaman, uh, the big, great platform at Baalbek, and so many other artifacts around the world, you're looking at the remains of a different kind of humanity in those extraordinary ruins that we cannot build to this day. And also in this practice, th this that we're talking about right now, this is a remnant of humanity when we were different. And when I say different, we were open. We were not soul blind. Let me ask you a question. What is your best advice to someone who says to you, maybe no one's ever said this to you before because we don't know it. I actually know I'm soul blind. I can't feel my soul. Now, I'm not soul blind. I have to tell you, I'm speaking figuratively. I can feel my soul. Uh, but someone who comes to you and says, what am I to do mm. to awaken myself mm -hmm. to my own soul and to all mm -hmm. that surround it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that one of the easiest ways to reconnect to our soul and to our spirit and really to the other world is to be in nature. Um, our beautiful natural world is replete with intelligence. It doesn't look like human intelligence. It doesn't communicate like human intelligence communicates, but nevertheless, it is powerful, potent intelligences from the smallest mycelium, right? The mycelial layers that do amazing regenerative and powerful work for the earth to the largest oceanic bodies full of all kinds of intelligence. And so if we can 
slow ourselves down, step into an eco-spiritual practice of being in nature, listening to nature, observing nature, relaxing back, stepping out of our fight or flight, right? Uh, or the just the grind of survival and relaxing back into Gaia, relaxing back into the planet. We then become... Uh, we step out of, uh, Orion has this great thing. He says, we step off of the battlefield and onto the dance floor of co-creative consciousness with the planet. And we begin to realize, right, that we are an intelligence surrounded by myriad other intelligences, both visible and invisible, that we co can potentially co-create with. But it starts by softening and it starts by relaxing. And I think that the easiest way to do that is to, to get one's, one's body in nature. Yeah, that I think that's very important. And uh, you can do things, folks, like a walking meditation where you... I do the sensing exercise from the Gurdjieff tradition where you place your attention on your body mm -hmm. and uh, you move through in, when you're doing it, when you're walking, you move through the woods or the garden or wherever you happen to be in the, in nature and nature will caress you. Uh, there are many other meditations you can use if you don't use that one that, that, that have the same effect, mm -hmm. but it's a living conscious presence and we have to understand consciousness and intelligence are two different things nature can be conscious but have no logical intelligence it has a it has a spiritual intelligence and an evolutionary intelligence that's just extraordinary but it doesn't necessarily count one plus one equal two we can get in touch with that higher consciousness by in a sense surrendering to just the simplest thing a walk through the woods on an, any afternoon cloudy sunny cold or warm my megan where are you going from here speaking mm. of walking in the woods mm. you have a journey a spiritual journey that you're very far along on mm. a path partly pathless, but still very much there. Where does it take you from here? Do you know? That's a great question. You know, spending almost 20 years on this material, I'm a little bit of a breathing point right now. And, and also, you know, this, the book just came out a couple of months ago. And so I'm still kind of in the process of, really trying to normalize, I call it normalizing the paranormal, really trying to help people understand that um, things like extrasensory perception, you know, Dr. Dean Radin talks about this in his yes. book, Real Magic, about how all of these things are part of the normal human spectrum experience. But just like we have spectrums of consciousness and spectrums of sexuality and spectrums of gender, we have spectrums of our... Um, of our ability to be sort of more my, my more zoomed into the physical and then we sort of zoom out into the expanse of the cosmos and that that spanda that in and out that pulsation is a very normal thing for humans to do 
Um, we don't necessarily live in that expanded otherworldly space 24-7 because then like how do we pay bills and, and feed ourselves? Um, but we have the capacity to breathe into and out of that um, and really discerning um, set and setting when it's appropriate to be zoomed out and when we need to zoom in. That's, you know, that's a big piece of my my practice and my teachings and and really just letting people know that this um, spirit marriage is, um, like I said, it is uh, hidden in plain sight. It's been with us since the beginning of the recorded history and the, the beginnings of our species and that it is uh, a blessing and a gift and a um, a birthright uh, for humans, it, should they choose to to you know walk this walk this wild path. You have some wonderful ideas about exploring your sacred story, and we've already talked about walking in the woods. And I I thought you would bring up talking, but walking and making a recording as you walk mm. is a beautiful way, and you. Also talk about dream tending. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about dream tending and what that is? Yeah, dream tending is really paying attention to um, powerful dreams that you have. And um, then just like it says, tending them. So not saying, oh, hi, I had this interesting dream. I wonder what that was about. But actually living into the dream ritually. Um, so taking aspects of the dream and journaling about it, taking if uh, in my case, I often had um, otherworldly or extraordinary beings that would show up in dreams. Um, and so beginning a kind of um, automatic writing process with those figures um, revisiting the themes of the dream over and over again, watching and listening for synchronicities that, that reference back or that echo the dream. All of these are ways to keep the dream alive as you keep feeling into it and, um, and listening for or looking for, feeling for deeper levels of meaning with the dream. Um, in my own dream tending case, it, you know, I will often have a powerful dream and I say powerful dream because that, you know, we have all a variety of different kinds of dreams we can have. We have dreams that are like, I'm just stressed about something and I'm dreaming about it, or I'm rehashing the conversation that I had earlier. Or I'm dreaming about that really delicious uh, puff pastry that I want or whatever. Um, but then we have these numinous dreams where something remarkable has occurred and where we feel touched or changed or just quickened by them. And those are the kinds of dreams that I'm talking about tending, keeping them um, forefront in our consciousness while we're we're sort of feeling into the the messages. And it's not trying to interpret the dream, but letting the dream speak to you, right? Letting the dream be its own sort of numinous or intelligence, uh, intelligent field that um, will bring a book or a conversation or an encounter um, to you that, um, that, that opens you to more of your soul. Dreams can have a really powerful ability to, to, to move us into um, extraordinary contact with ourselves and with the other world. Because the other world is speaking to us through dreams. And so we are also speaking to ourselves through dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is why they have always been 
so important in in uh in 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 this journey when this ancient journey it used to be guided and almost entirely by dreams mm-hmm. and you can still they're still available yeah. that's the thing that we must not forget folks it's not that the world has changed we have we have become addicted to material it's an illness and in fact a fatal one as we shall probably see and maybe even the lifetimes of some of us watching and listening now. Um, And we can cure ourselves of this illness. The way to do it is to follow the, in the footsteps of people like Megan and Orion Foxwood and people who are willing to go out on the edge where we're not supposed to be, where nothing is supposed to be real Mm. and look back and say, hey, it's real and it's a lot more wonderful than worrying about the next fancy TV you're going to get. A lot more. Well, I think this has been a lovely experience with a very sacred individual. Uh, Megan Rose is, you have moved me very much in this interview and I'm glad of it. Megan's website is drmeganrose.com. Her book, Spirit Marriage, which I have in my hand, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings, it's also an intimate relationship with ourselves in the highest levels that we live. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, first and foremost, reach through to our, your divine self. It's there. It's never not been there. It's reaching through to you. And um, dreams are one of the ways that it contacts you. And um, we can, every one of us, each one of us has a divine self we can get to know, fall in love with, have a relationship with. Thank you so much for being with us on Dreamland. And thank you. <laughs> the good spirits of the world for finally letting us do this show. We tried last week and there were problems. We tried twice this morning and both times there were problems. And now third time's a charm. (laughs) Third time's the charm. Maybe it has worked. I certainly hope so. Megan Rose on the journey. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a blessing. May this bless your listeners. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.